to bring up the uh, the fact that my wife and I uh, we have uh, a real uh, awesome the awesome privilege of having had a close relationship with our hairdresser for many many years. In fact, he's here today. Steve, wave your hand. I know I didn't I didn't tell you I'd be uh, pointing you out today. Wave your hand, Steve. High in the air. There he is. Now, Stev is, has been coming to Coast. His wife, Katie, have been coming to Coast for about six, eight months now, I think. And uh, we have had the privilege of knowing them for, man, I, I think now coming up on ten years almost. Ten years. And my wife met Stev uh, while she was in college. She got a hot tip on a great hairstylist. And so she went over there and met Stev. And you know my wife. Uh, she... Uh, immediately uh, incurs the, the love and friendship of all she meets. And uh, she and Stev got along great. She came back and said, Neil, you got to go to Stev. And I said, yeah, yeah, whatever. I like supercuts. And she said, no, you got to go to Stev. And, and uh, Stev, said, Stev finally said, hey, I'll match your supercut price. Come on in. You know, so I came on in. Um, but after 10 years of being under the, uh, the haircutting master of Stev, uh, we, Casey and I, we feel a little bit kind of like VIPs, really, at the salon. Uh, we, we go in, you know, we know Stev, we've known him for about a decade now. Uh, we're, we're some of his best clients, some of his most regulars now. And uh, occasionally, over time, you know, Stev, he has, these, he has a number of assistants that he goes through. You know, he'll, he'll have an assistant one year and then it might be different the next year. And inevitably, inevitably, when my wife calls in to make an appointment, she sometimes gets a new assistant who doesn't know who she is. And so she calls up and says, Hi, I'm Casey. I'd like to make an appointment this week for Stev. And the assistant says, Oh, I'm sorry, we're booked up this week. And my wife has never done this. Okay, she wanted me to clarify. But she's always been tempted to say, do you know who I am? <laughs> you see, because me and my wife, when we call Stev, we get in that week. We get in that week, right Stev? Hey, by the way, I'm, I'm really shabby right now. Are we good this week? Alright, good. Good. You know... <clears throat> And by the way, and, and Stev always makes fun of me for, after I get the haircut, how poorly I style my hair after that. So please, this is not a product of him, okay? Alright? In any event, you know what it's like to be a very important person, don't you? You know what it's like to have the in with someone you know in business or wherever it is in your life. Uh, you know what it's like to have, to, to be in the know, to know who to call to know when to get in when you want to get in. In our story in Mark, Mark 9:38, the disciples think they're in the inner circle. The disciples think they are very important people. They think that they are the authorized, certified representatives of Jesus Christ, and that everyone is supposed to go through them in order to get close to Jesus or in order to act on His behalf. The title of my message, a little bit of a funny one here, is We're the Authorized, Sanctioned, and Certified Christians. And this is the perspective of the disciples in Mark 9.38. I'm certainly not using this endorsing it. I'm saying this is the concept this is the perspective that is rolling through the mind of the disciples. They think they are the authorized, sanctioned, and certified representatives of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at Mark 9, verse 38. Mark 9:38 says this, Now John answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. 
For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in My name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Verse 43, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that today we can learn from the perspective of the disciples. Lord, they were haughty. They were proud. They considered themselves VIPs. And Your Son had a lot to say to them in response to that attitude. And I pray that this day we would be able to open up Your Word by Your Spirit to interpret it, to understand it, and to apply it to our lives, that we might learn from this story. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Back to verse 38. Now John answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. Now do you recall what happened a couple weeks ago in our study in Mark when Jesus had come down the mountain after having been transfigured, what situation did He encounter with His other nine disciples? What did they fail to do? They had failed to cast out a demon. Days ago, days ago, the disciples had failed to cast out a demon. They had failed to do what they were commissioned to do. They had failed to do what they were sanctioned to do. They had failed to do what they were certified to do. And now they come upon a man, days later, who is casting out demons. Notice the plural. He's casting out demons, left and right perhaps, in Jesus' name. This apparently unknown man is encountering multiple instances of demon possession. And in each instance, he is successfully casting out the evil spirit by invoking the name of Jesus. Why is it then that the disciples decide to stifle this man? I want to ask the question, why do the disciples ban the ministry of the unknown exorcist? Why do the disciples ban the ministry of the unknown exorcist? You ever seen that street sign before? Neither have I. Okay. All right. It was on the internet though. I was like, where is that? I want to know what town that is. Anyway, alright, first, number one, they are probably jealous. They're jealous of the success of the exorcist, right? This is, this is a no-brainer. That's precisely why they're banning him. Certainly they have a measure of jealousy within them. Certainly they envy the fact that they failed days ago to cast out a demon, and this man is repeatedly finding success in casting out demons in Jesus' name. Secondly, they view themselves as the authorized representatives of Jesus and desire the ministry of exorcism to be exclusive to them. The disciples view themselves as the authorized Jesus reps. And they want the ministry of casting out demons to be theirs And there's alone. Back to the text briefly. Notice what John 
Notice how John words this. He says this. He says, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. Believe it or not, it's, it's actually a little bit unclear as to who the word us refers to. It could refer to Jesus and the disciples as a collective group. Equally so, it could also refer to the twelve disciples, period. To the twelve disciples and just the twelve disciples. And so it's difficult to figure out who the word, what the word us is referring to. Is it Jesus and the disciples or just the disciples? A lot of scholars opt for the latter. They think that, that John is saying, hey, he's not, he's not following our lead as disciples. In fact, one scholar uh, believes this, and he, he went on to make the following comment about it. He said this, the disciples wrongly believe that they have an exclusive link with and commission from Jesus so that other people's association with Jesus must be through their mediation. They're so focused on themselves as the authorized representatives of Jesus that their opinion is, if you're going to act in Jesus' name, you've got to get our stamp of approval first. We're the mediators. Um, you know, we, we, in our culture, don't we fall prey to the tendency of wanting to... Uh, authorize things, to give our stamp of approval on things. I think we all fight that tendency. When someone else uh, is, is successful in life or, 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 or when someone that we consider to be maybe, maybe of a lesser social status or maybe less spiritual than us and they start growing and maturing in their, in their life and we look upon them and we think, well, you know, but I need to approve of this first. Sometimes we get a little haughty. Sometimes we get a little proud. Sometimes we get a little impressed with our own titles, our own degrees, our own certification, if you will. And we think that others can only succeed insofar as we allow them to. Or we permit them to. Nothing could be further from the truth here. The third and final reason why the disciples probably banned the ministry of the unknown exorcist Three, they fear Jesus' reputation might be tarnished by an unknown exorcist. Now, this is very probable as well. Um, if you look back in your uh, Old Testament, you turn to Numbers 11, there's a story in which Joshua, the right-hand man of Moses, sees other men in the camp prophesying. And he goes up to Moses and says, Moses, forbid them, they're prophesying. And Moses says, why? Why should I forbid them? You can read the story in Numbers chapter 11. He says, why should I forbid them? And, and Moses goes on to suggest that he wants many representatives of God to be in the camp. He, he is welcome to, to get off the stage and let many other people hop on it and lead the Israelites. Moses' perspective is, I am not exclusive to the ministry of prophecy. And when Joshua asked Moses to forbid them from prophesying, he says, don't be zealous for my sake. Don't be zealous for my sake. I wish that everyone were a prophet, Moses says. I think, uh, I think we can fall prey to this, friends. I think we can fall prey to the tendency that any work of God in and through another Christian or another church must first pass our test of certification. Are we... Are we that arrogant? Are we that arrogant to think that God only works through Christians who are just like us? As one man put it, uh, are we impulsively hostile to outsiders? Are we impulsively hostile to them? Do we automatically show skepticism and hostility toward them, toward other Christians, when something great happens? Um, I'm often asked, I'll give you this uh, illustration, I am very frequently asked, I would say this happens twice a month, I'm very frequently asked what I think of Rick Warren and Saddleback Church. 
And most of the time, when I'm asked that question, the person asking that question is looking for me to give a negative answer. I'll admit that. Most of the time, the person asking the question, what do you think of Rick Warren? What do you think of Saddleback Church? What do you think of the mega church movement? They're looking for me to concur with their opinion that what Saddleback is doing is church light, is not that effective, is not very, uh, not, not what the church needs to be doing. And friends, I'll, I'll just be honest and say, I, I never criticize Saddleback Church. I never criticize Rick Warren. And I'll tell you why. Because Saddleback Church and Pastor Warren are doing things at that church that this church could never do. Because of their resources, because of their size, because of their prominence, what they're doing in Africa and other third world parts around the world is phenomenal. Building churches, helping the homeless, working to fight AIDS. I, I applaud what Saddleback is doing with respect to what is called the peace plan. I'm in favor of it. I'm behind it. I'm a big fan. And I, I wonder if we often, we just kind of, well, you know, well, that church over there and there over there, well, they, they don't know what they're doing. But here, we got it all together. Friends, that is so far from the truth. We've got many things that we need to work on. And I want to celebrate, within reason, I want to celebrate what other churches are doing. So long as we have commonality in the fundamentals of the faith. Now that is, is granted here. We need to share some common doctrine. We need to share the, the common fundamental truths of the Scriptures if we are to celebrate what another church is doing. But if we can do that, and if God is working mightily through them or through other Christians that are outside the walls of this church, I don't want to certify it. I want to celebrate it. Edmund Hybert writes this in summary of this section of Scripture. He says, This brief incident stands as a firm rebuke to the spirit of sectarianism. It condemns that exclusive attitude which insists that only those who carry on their work in harmony with our views and our practices can be accepted as really doing God's work. And that is well said. Far be it from us that we should limit God's work in the life of another believer. Let us not forget when a person believes in Christ, that person becomes a new creation. That person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That person is capable of doing amazing things in the name of Jesus Christ. And while it may be true that they may not have all of their theological ducks in a row, neither does this preclude them from doing tremendous good for the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. I encourage us to celebrate God's work in the life of other churches and Christians with whom we have unity with. Now needless to say, as we come back to our text, Jesus is less than impressed with the exclusive nature of John and the disciples' actions. And in verses 39-41, to Jesus is going to give three reasons why the disciples should not hinder this exorcist ministry. Take a look at verses 39-41 to and notice the three times Jesus says, for. He says this, Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for, number one, no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For, he who is not against us is on our side. For, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus forbids, Jesus disavows the disciples' ban on the exorcist. And he says, he gives three reasons for why he does this. First, he says, no one can work a miracle in my name and soon afterwards speak evil of me. Now, to be clear, Jesus is making the point here that, 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 that this person who is performing a miracle in his name is successful, achieves the miracle, that the miracle actually occurs. And Jesus is su- suggesting here that no one who successfully performs a miracle 
by appealing to the power and authority of Jesus Christ can soon afterwards speak evil of Him. We might think this to mean that God will not allow a miracle to occur in the name of His Son if the one performing that miracle is a fraud or an enemy of Jesus Christ. You say, well now wait a minute. Um, I see a lot of things on TV that look awful fishy. Friends, I want to, I want to emphasize the fact that this is a successful miracle. A verifiable miracle. A successful exorcist. Um, oftentimes, uh, in any, in any uh, healing ministry, in fact, I was just reading the other day about a new man in, in Florida coming out of the Assembly of God movement and the Assembly of God church, which is largely a charismatic church, are distancing themselves from this man in Florida. And the reason they're distancing themselves from him, uh, even though he is uh, apparently on stage performing these miracles, is that these miracles are not being verified. This man is not offering proof. He's not offering validity that the miracle has in fact occurred. In fact, upon request, they asked him, can you give us ten verifiable accounts of your miracles? And they found that the church found, the denomination found, that all ten of the people, of the evidence that he threw out to the denomination for consideration, all ten of them fell short and were lacking in substance. I'm not talking about someone who's up on stage apparently doing a miracle, but actually not. I'm talking about someone who verifiably performs a miracle in Jesus' name. That person, Jesus says, cannot soon afterwards speak evil of me. They are a friend. They are not an enemy. Secondly, let me just say this though before I move on. We must be wise as serpents here, friends, when considering the works of a supposed healer, miracle worker, or exorcist. Um, and I know we're in the West, we're in the U.S., we're saying, well, wait a minute, I don't, even, I don't even know if I've ever seen this. Friends, this is happening all over the world. All over the world. And it is happening in the United States. When we do hear of persons who are appealing to the power and authority of Jesus Christ to perform miracles, when we see these miracles, we should look for evidence. We should look to confirm them. And if it can be established that a miracle has occurred by a person who is appealing to the power and authority of Jesus Christ, then I would argue that we must be prepared to welcome that person into the community of faith. Secondly, Jesus says, for he who is not against us is on our side. For he who is not against us is on our side. Now, it's probably safe to say here that Jesus is using a measure of exaggeration, a measure of hyperbole with this statement to communicate his point. What Jesus means here is that since the unknown exorcist is not using his newfound spiritual power to oppose the ministry of Jesus and the disciples, it's safe to say this man is a friend of Jesus and the disciples. Because he's not using this power to oppose Jesus. It's, there's no evidence of that. The disciples are the only ones banning him. They don't talk about how this man is belittling Jesus or the ministry of the disciples. This man is not belittling them. He's not opposing them. Therefore, it's safe to assume the man is a friend, Jesus says. Third, and finally, Jesus says, for whoever gives you, plural, a cup of water to drink in My name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, if you're careful, you might notice that this final comment is a bit unique um, in that Jesus here is not defending the exorcist. He is, in, uh, he is in the first two statements, isn't He? In the first two statements, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. He's defending the exorcist. He's saying the guy's, the guy's legit. The second phrase, for he who is not against us is on our side. The guy's, he's a legitimate miracle worker. He's a legitimate representative of Jesus Christ. But here, in the third and final statement, Jesus is not defending the unknown exorcist as much as he is reaffirming the special value of the disciples to the Gospel ministry. He is reaffirming here the special value of the disciples to the Gospel ministry. The disciples are jealous. 
they've lost a measure of identity and self-worth. They look upon this man and, and they're, they're, they're envious. They're frustrated that he can perform the exorcism and they were unable to days ago. And Jesus here encourages the disciples to embrace the exorcist ministry and not compete with him for the respect of others. After all, the self-worth and spiritual abilities of both the exorcist and the disciples is grounded exclusively in the fact that they belong to Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. This is almost like a, a parting motivation to accept the exorcist in that Jesus is telling the disciples, hey, you are still special to Me. So special, in fact, that when another person cares for you and brings you a cup of cold water to drink, that person will receive a reward for their kindness. It's quite likely that this final comment by Jesus was an indirect way of encouraging the disciples to also welcome and be hospitable to the exorcist. Now on to verse 42. And before we move there, before we move to verse 42, I want to point out the fact that not all biblical scholars agree on the chronological arrangement in Mark chapter 9 here. As most of you know, some of you may not, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, throughout the Gospels, they are not necessarily chronologically ordered. Um, the events that happen at times jump back and jump forward. Um, they are arranged much more thematically than they are chronologically. And this may also be an instance in which that is the case, and I'll show you why. Take a look at this next slide. Uh, verse 37 from Mark 9, it says, For whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now between verse 37 and before verse 42, we have the story we, we just covered, right? The story of the unknown exorcist. Well, after that story, notice the, 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 the line that picks up. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You see why they might have a problem with the chronological arrangement here? It seems, on some level, that... Verse 42 should most likely follow verse 37. And that very well could be the case. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, that is the case. In the Gospel of Matthew, verse 42, the parallel verse, follows uh, that, that, that verse in verse 37 of Mark here. But it's not necessarily the case that, that, this is, that, that Mark is not listing it in chronological order. But I want to point this out to communicate the fact that, that Mark is doing this for a reason, friends. Mark isn't, uh, he isn't ignorant. He isn't uh, not, not thinking clearly. And oops, I put the story in the wrong spot. If, if in fact it is, we, we really can't know for sure. Mark is not ignorant here. He's put the story of the exorcist in this position for a very good reason. And we need to figure out what that reason is. So let's take a look at verse 42. It's up there behind you. Once again, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Okay. The warning here. It's a big warning. The warning here is spoken directly to the disciples. But of course, we, we, we might say that it's intended for any hearer. The warning that we read in verse 42 and following are meant to be taken as hyperbole or exaggeration. Um, nevertheless, Jesus makes it clear that there will be severe consequences for the person who commits these kinds of, this kind of sin. In verse 42, he says it would be preferable to drown than to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Now, who does the phrase little ones refer to? That's the, that's, that's the question of the hour here. Now, it's very likely that at the very least, the phrase little ones refers back to verse 37. After all, there was a little child in their midst um, and Jesus had put that child in the middle of them. Lloyd preached on that last week. did an outstanding job. I got a chance to listen to it online. And if, if you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to do so. 
Jesus put that child in the midst of them and said, Hey, I want you to be like this child. I want you to receive this child. I want you to welcome this child. I want you to be hospitable to this child. I want you to consider your social status as no better than this child. And verse 42, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to stumble, if you're not receiving this child, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Friends, I think it's safe to say at the very least, the phrase little ones refers to the children from verse 37. But moreover, we have quite a story in between these two accounts. The story of the unknown exorcist. And it's very possible that this phrase, little ones, is also meant either by Jesus if it were chronologically or by Mark if it's thematically, that this phrase, little ones, is also meant to encompass the brief story we've just read. The story of the unknown exorcist. Perhaps Jesus was using the phrase little ones to refer not merely to small neglected children, but also to ambassadors and messengers of the Lord Jesus Christ who may not have lofty titles or credentials or social status, but yet serve others in the power of the Spirit of God. It's very possible that Jesus, or perhaps Mark, was using the phrase little ones strategically to say, hey, whether it's a child or whether it's someone who is outside the circle of authorization, yet is still appealing to the power and authority of Jesus Christ, you need to not cause that person to stumble. And I ask you the question, what have the disciples done with that exorcist? What had they done with him? They had forbidden him to perform an exorcism. Now stop and think about that for a moment. They caused him to stumble. That is to say, they they caused him to um, literally trip in in Greek. To trip trip at his faith. To trip in his growth. And and this man, following the Lord Jesus Christ, probably uh, knowing of the disciples and respecting them, admiring them, perhaps learning under them. And the twelve disciples come up to this man, twelve men that that this exorcist admires, and they say, stop it. Stop what you're doing. You're not acting on Jesus' behalf. Cease. Knock it off. I speculate that this man was totally confused. I speculate that this man was was probably really discouraged. He probably felt like, well, wait a minute. But I know I'm serving Jesus Christ. But I know that I'm rightly appealing to the authority of Jesus Christ for the power by which I exercise these demons. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong, the man might be thinking. Surely, friends, this incident would have significantly rocked this man's faith and probably caused him to question whether in fact he was acting on God's behalf. The disciples had caused this man to stumble. And Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble... It would be better if you drowned. It would be better if you drowned. That's an extreme way of saying, don't ever do that. Don't ever do that again. I, I, really, I, wish, I wish we had a story about what happened to the man after this account. I really do. I wish we could know what happened to the faith of this exorcist. Did he, did he go the rest of his life thinking that, wow, the disciples rebuked me, so... I'm done. I'm done. I thought I was serving God and I guess I'm not. Or did this man recognize that the Spirit of God was in fact in him, working through him, and he took their criticism and said, I'm sorry. And as much as you are supposed to be my leaders, I know my conscience is clean. I'm acting on Jesus' behalf. Friends, don't, 
Our words can build up or tear down the faith of another like that. It can be so quick. It can be one sentence and you can rock the faith of a fellow Christian. Be careful how we speak to fellow believers. Let us always seek to build up their faith and not put a rock in their way. Now we're going to continue the theme of stumbling. Only now in verse 43... Jesus speaks about the possibility of causing oneself to stumble. Take a look at 43 to 48. We're going to move through this a little bit more quickly. 43 to 48. Jesus turns to themselves, to the disciples themselves, and says, Hey, you know, you're causing this exorcist to stumble. You're causing these little children to stumble. But you know what? You also, yourselves, you who think you're authorized, sanctioned, and certified as my representatives, you yourselves are, putting, are allowing sin to creep up in your own person. And you're not dealing with it. Verse 43, Hey, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I'm, as I read this, I couldn't help but think of Mark, uh, Matthew 7, verse 3 in which Jesus says, why, why are you looking at the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a plank in yours? The disciples were looking at the exorcist and they were... He's not acting on Jesus' behalf. They, they, they were basically saying this man's in sin. This man is wrongly exemplifying himself as a representative of Jesus Christ. He is counterfeit. They were suggesting that this man was a fake, a phony. And they... They were looking upon this man saying he's in sin. And Jesus is saying, hey, that, that guy's not in sin. You've got a log in your eye here. You've got a log in your eye. Why are you looking at the speck in his eye? He's not even in sin. You've got a plank in your own eye. Now, there's obvious repetition going on in this passage, isn't there? I, I didn't, you know, we, we could break it down and, and go into all the details of this. But really, friends, there's a repeating theme here, Okay. We don't need to take it verse by verse. What we need to take together is the theme that's going on. So take a look at the theme here, the repeating theme from verses 43 to 48. And it is this. Number one, go to drastic measures to remove sin from yourself. Jesus says, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, pluck out your eye. If you're in sin, get it out. Cut it off. This may also have... Um, some priestly connotations to it from the Old Testament where they would literally cut off the one who was in sin in the camp so that the people could be holy. He's saying, cut it off. Do whatever it takes to get rid of that sin. Go to drastic measures. I'm using that because I believe, and I, I hope, Jesus is using hyperbole in verses 43 to 48. Not all scholars actually believe that, believe it or not. Um, you know, and, and over the course of the Christian church, friends... Uh, you, will, you can read stories in church history, I can point them out to you, in which Christians did, in fact, cut off their foot, cut off their hand, pluck out their eye, if, in fact, it caused them to sin. I do not believe that's what Jesus is advocating. I do believe He's saying, go to drastic measures to cut out sin. Secondly, it is better to enter the kingdom having carried out these drastic measures than to continue in sin and to be cast into hell. Um, and the word life that you see in verses 43 and 45, and then it goes to kingdom of God in, verses, in verse 47, that should be taken as synonymous. We shouldn't see a difference there. So Jesus is suggesting here that it is better for, for, for you, and he's speaking to the disciples, but he's indirectly speaking to all of us, it's better for all of us that we carry out these drastic measures to remove sin than to continue in it and to be cast into hell. Third and finally, he gives uh, an explanation of what hell is. He says, hell is the place of unquenchable fire and endless deterioration. I get that deterioration from the, from the worm that does not die. 
And that phrase there that you see repeated three times, that comes from Isaiah 66:24, the very last verse in Isaiah, where, uh, where God speaks of, of Jerusalem and Zion being vindicated, and yet those who have opposed God and, and Jerusalem who are uh, experiencing eternal torment. What I, what I didn't do, and I, I wanted to, but this, this message just got a little bit too long, but what I didn't do is, is go into the background behind uh, the word Jesus uses here for hell. It's the word Gehenna. And just briefly, that word is uh, in reference to a place just south of Jerusalem. Um, Gehinnom in Hebrew is the Valley of Hinnom, which is just south of Jerusalem. And in that valley, uh, just you history buffs out here, in that valley, um, idolatrous Jews back around the time of uh, 900 B.C., idolatrous Jews would sacrifice their children to the god Molech, the false god Molech, in the valley of Hinnom, which is in, in Hebrew, Gehinnom, in Greek, Gehenna. And that, that, that location was just south of Jerusalem, this valley in which they did these horrible, horrible sacrifices. They turned against God and sacrificed their children to a false god. Israel was so repentant and so remorseful of what they had done that later on, King Josiah and from him onward, they designated that valley, the Valley of Hinnom, as the city dump of Jerusalem. And in that valley, they would bring all their waste, all their rubbish, they would throw it in there, and there was a fire lit in the Valley of Hinnom, a fire, a smoldering fire that the people would say would, was never going out because garbage, rubbish, was always being added to it. And there were maggots and worms, and this place was totally uh, desolate and desecrated, a place where no one went except to throw away their trash, and the fire burned continuously. Greek word, Gehenna, Valley of Hinnom. That same word is the word used here for hell. It was the word most prominent, well, most, uh, I would say most vividly, uh, it was the most, it was the most extreme word used by the Jews to explain what hell would be like. Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, the place of the smoldering fire at the dump of Jerusalem. Moving on to verse 49. Last two verses here. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Now, it's difficult to know where Jesus is going with this. Um, it, it could be the case, once again, it could be the case that this is a, not chronological, but rather a thematically placed statement by Mark. That perhaps this statement didn't directly follow this account but Mark inserted it here for good reason. And Jesus' words here hearken back to the Levitical law. In, in the Old Testament times, they would pour salt on the grain offering. They would pour salt on other offerings. Uh, you can read about that in Leviticus 2. And they would, they would offer up the burnt offerings with salt on them um, as a pleasing aroma, a pleasing sacrifice uh, to God. It, it indicates here, as Jesus says, for everyone will be seasoned with fire, every sacrifice seasoned with salt, that the disciples are to be men who go through the trials and testing of God. They are being tested right now. And God desires, uh, Jesus desires that they pass this test. And, and, and he's using the, the, the imagery of Old Testament sacrifice to communicate this. R.T. France writes, To be salted with fire seems then to evoke the imagery of temple sacrifice. But the victims aren't burnt offerings. They're not like burnt bulls and rams and and whatnot. The victims who are salted are now the worshipers. They're us. They're the disciples. Their dedication to the service of their suffering Messiah is like that of a burnt offering. Total and irrevocable. Jesus' emphasis on trial and testing is escalating. It's escalating with each page we turn in the Gospel of Mark. And the most uh, recent test of the disciples now is to welcome the little ones. Welcome the little ones. Openly receive children and fellow laborers 
in the gospel ministry. Their test is to treat such little ones with love and compassion, not disregard them or be their overlord. Their test is to not cause these little ones to stumble in faith. Their test is to remove all sinful inclinations within themselves and to remain focused on God's kingdom alone. Friends, the disciples are undergoing the process of being salted with fire. Like a burnt offering was salted in the Old Testament. In verse 49, Jesus speaks of receiving salt upon yourself. You're being salted. You're encountering trials. Now in verse 50, He'll go on to show us that salt is also a quality. It's also a characteristic that we are to possess and convey to others. The final verse. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it again? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. He says salt is good. The trials and the testing, they produce integrity. They produce endurance. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? That is to say, if we lose sight of the fact that we are called to undergo tests for our own good, to undergo trials from God, it becomes difficult to recapture that perspective. Once we lose that perspective, once we think, well, man, I'm just going to start feeling sorry for myself, it's difficult to recapture the mindset that this is being done for our good, our benefit. Have salt in yourselves. Embrace testing. Embrace testing. And have peace with one another. For through the testing comes maturity and wisdom that leads to peace. If the disciples go through this time of testing with Jesus, they will become men of peace. Not men who seek to be greater than the other. From verse 34. If the men go through this testing of Jesus and prove true, they'll become men of peace. Not men who disregard children as people of lesser status in verse 37. If the disciples go through this process of testing and, and prove true, they will become men of peace, not men who prohibit others from acting in Jesus' name. Verse 38. In all of these instances, friends, the disciples were trying to isolate themselves from other people. The disciples considered themselves better than each other and certainly better than a little child and the unknown exorcist. Jesus reminds them that they are to become a community of peace. A community where all are given the chance to be included in God's kingdom so long as they name the name of Christ. Social status, in as much as it's often deeply important to us, is, is rather meaningless to Jesus. Jesus isn't looking at our job title. Uh, he's not looking at the degrees behind our name. Uh, you teenagers in the front row, He's not looking at how many friends you have on MySpace. I know that's important, but He's not looking at how many friends you have on MySpace. Jesus is looking at our hearts. He's looking at the humble one. He's looking for the meek one. And it's often the case that the one who has little to no social status in this life will be the one Jesus calls on to great inheritance in the life to come. 1 Samuel 16.7 The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Let's go to application. How can we learn from this message? I got four things. I really, I really, really thought through this. And uh, it's important to me that, that you grab hold of these and consider these for your life. Um, th- this was especially meaningful for me going through these. Number one, the disciples sought to stifle God's work in a fellow believer largely because he was not under their authority. Are we guilty of coveting control over other believers? I think at times we are guilty of that. Um, We've got to release that. We've got to let go and, and not try to control the spirituality of another believer. Secondly, do we put more stock in titles, degrees, and offices held than in biblical qualities that are to define a Christian? Um, I, I, I'm not important because I'm a pastor or because I have a degree in theology. That, that does not make me worthy what makes me worthy, what makes us worthy, is whether or not we are exemplifying biblical qualities in our life. Thirdly, are we unduly inclined to be skeptical of a work of God through the life of another believer or church until it warrants our stamp of approval? 
Now, this is the one that I really thought through. I wanted to get this just right. I suspect that quite a few of us deal with this. I suspect that quite a few of us were were instinctively skeptical, unduly so, and we think, ah, no, not until I approve it. Not until I uh, put my stamp on it. And that's not to say we shouldn't be verifying things. We should, but I caution us if our immediate reaction is always skepticism. It shouldn't be. Our immediate reaction should not always be skepticism to a work of God in the life of another believer or church. Fourth and finally, do we seek peace with fellow believers or do we view them as competition? Um, you know, this, this can wreak havoc in a church, I'll tell you. Lloyd, Lloyd Grimm, man, that guy preached last week. He had, uh, he had incredible... Um, what am I trying to say? The illustration. Uh, object lessons, right? Lloyd Grimm is phenomenal at object lessons. He is way better than me. It's ridiculous. And my, my job now is to not look upon Lloyd and think, man, I wish I was that good at object lessons. My job is to celebrate what God has gifted Lloyd Grimm to do. He is a phenomenal teacher. And when he brings those object lessons, I mean, you got, I, I, I could hear it in the crowd. People lit up. We need to celebrate the gifts and the skills and the talents that God brings to this body and not view them in competition with one another. Friends, are we falling prey to the perspective that the disciples had? Do we consider ourselves the authorized, sanctioned, and certified Christians that all others need our stamp of approval? Or do we seek to bring peace to the community of faith? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for its precious truth. Father, I learned a lot from this message And I thank You for it. Um, I pray that You'd continue to grow us, Father. Stretch us. Lord, we know we're in sin. We know we sin every day. And we pray, Lord, that we would go to drastic measures to remove that sin. That we might be a people who does not view others with a competitive eye or with an exclusive hand. That we don't always view others with skepticism when You work in and through them. But may we be quick to celebrate and not quick to certify. Father, may You show us how we can be at peace with other believers, both in and outside here of Coast Bible Church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.